Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Good morning and Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you or you're listening to this on the podcast, my name is Rabbi Daniel Scher, uh, and I will be here to fill in for Rabbi Amy Bernstein this morning. And about a month ago, when I had the privilege of working with you guys last, I made a joke that she was probably just, you know, a little bit of hazing to making sure that I was ready to, to, to do some of the other rabbinic work. And we laughed because you guys are lovely. This isn't a scary group. But today's Torah portion may be that piece of hazing. You see, we are in the second, we're in the triennial. Does anyone know what portion we're on? That's right. You're muted. I'll yeah, tell we're you. In, we're, we're in Truma. We're in Truma, Truma, the second piece of the triennial. And I will be one. honest with you. 26.1. This material is what you call dry. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't beautiful Torah that we're going to extract from it. But let's be very clear here. We are reading a holy instruction manual. That's what we're going to read today. And so I sat and thought, okay. Last month, I had a chance to come on and teach with you guys, and it's a lovely group, and I'm so excited to be here again. But we do have to recognize that not all Torah is created in the same enthusiastic position. And this triennial of Truma in the second uh, of the three years happens to be a little bit more dry, straightforward, rules, just a listing one after the next. So we're going to investigate that. We're going to look at why, why would that be a triennial portion? And then we're going to have an opportunity at the end to recognize that this Shabbat is also Shabbat Zachor. So we're going to start with our triennial. We're on 26.1, and I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And who would like to read? Let's say, so if, you can always unmute by clicking the Unmute, I would love to have someone read a couple of verses for us. I can read, I assume you mean in English. I definitely mean in the English. That okay, would be a you. helpful way for all of us together, yes. As for the tabernacle, make it of 10 strips of cloth. Make these a fine twisted linen of blue, purple, and crimson yards, yarns with the design of cherubim worked into them. The length of each cloth shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each cloth shall be four cubits all the cloths to have the same measurements. Five of the cloths shall be joined to one another, and the other five cloths shall be joined to one another. Make loops of blue wool on the edge of the outermost cloth of one set, and do likewise on the edge of the outermost cloth of the other set. Make 50 loops on the one cloth and 50 loops on the edge of the end cloth of the other set, the loops to be opposite one another. And make 50 gold clasps and couple the cloths to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle becomes one whole. And then you do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around because that's what the tabernacle is all about, right? Does it not feel a little bit like we just read these lines and you're saying, huh? I mean, yes, this is detailed. And in that sense, there's something really beautiful to it. But When I start by reading a piece of Torah that tells me to take 10 strips of cloth, 
make them a finely twisted linen, which is something about the quality of linen, and blue and purple and crimson yarns, and with the design of the cherubim worked into them. So let's pause at that first line. Yes, Barry, I see a hand up. Um, I think it's amazing that you have um, this, you know, civilization, this religion, that uh, everything is transparent, and not only the priests uh, are given the manual you know, from father to son, um, everyone can, can see and understand what the priests are going to do. And, and also, it, it's, it's a, bit, a little bit funny to me that you have the, these cherubim images uh, on the tabernacle, sawed into the tabernacle, where you have uh, a commandment that says, you're not supposed to have images um, except you know, for God. Yeah. Uh, Jody. Um, first of all, I want to share that I, I write in my own Torah every week because, and I make notes so that I can understand what it's talking about. And I looked at this whole section and there are no notes because clearly I thought it was really boring. So, but what jumps out at me now is that this is a big sign of wealth. I mean, we're talking about purple and golden, and, and this is a lot of money. It's, all, it's a big display of wealth. Right, a so. big display of wealth that who are the people displaying it to? Right, to, to everyone else. Let everyone see. That's what I think. Yeah, in order to, to honor, honor and celebrate the... Uh, God, Shkina, yeah. Uh, can, I go to, can I go to metaphor here? If uh, we are supposed to make ourselves a tabernacle in which God can dwell as individuals, then part of what this says to me is how we do that. The details of how we make ourselves a vessel for God uh, is important. Yeah, it's a, that, it's a, that's, how, that's how I take this, not so much the building of the physical structure, although that was typically, but if we look at it as the building of our own selves and our own character, and not so much look at the details, but the fact that there are details, and sure. that it's not, it's not just one day deciding to do something, but that it's a very involved process. Yeah, and you know, honestly, no, no pun intended, or all pun intended, but this sounds like the perfect kind of uh, marketing plan to the religious uh, people for you know, Bloomingdale's, right? Come build your own tabernacle, the nicest, the shiniest, the prettiest, the most beautiful yarn and, and colors that you can possibly have. Yes, there is that side of it. So I don't want us to forget that as I go through the other questions. There is a side to how beautiful, how much effort is going into making this tabernacle just a gorgeous space. Do you think their homes look like this? Do you no. think their tents are this elaborate? Well, that's important so that when they step into the tabernacle, unlike in their own tents or in their own space, it feels different. Uh, I have Mehmet and then Judith. Um, uh, Daniel, we, we are certainly a, a people of the book. So um, teaching to read is, is very important. And we know the, the tradition of B'nai Vitzvah has been uh, around for a long time. Um, do we know anything about the literacy level of um, the Israelites in the early centuries? 
Sure. So at the time that Torah is first really coming into its uh, most vibrant, active use, everything was, uh, was auditory. There was the few that could read it, but the whole point, the reason that we have Saturday morning reading, and in some communities, we have a Monday morning and a Thursday morning, Thursday. Is, that, is that this was the moments in which the entire group could read. And in fact, though, this is a little bit of a non sequitur from what you're talking about. There's this really beautiful understanding that I have today when it, when a student comes to Rabbi Carey or myself, when there's a concern about potential dyslexia or difficulty with the reading, we remind them that until the printing press, Jews didn't have prayer books. Let's make this very clear. That's not the way our religion engaged. The reason so we it was all memorized. Read, it was memorized or it was here, here with this great little phrase, amen. By saying amen, it wasn't just saying like, yeah, I heard you. It was saying I listened to those words. And so the communal aspects were highly, highly, highly important. We know community matters for psychological needs. Believe me, as a community, I think I can say safely, we all have experienced that in this last year. Not having access to a building to join as community has had its real detriments. And having a platform like Zoom for us to still be together has shown us certain positives with the ability to still gather. But the tabernacle mattered in some part for exactly what you're saying. The literacy of the people, they didn't they all know how to read. They all knew how to listen. And the, it was all public. All this reading was public. These rules were public. They needed a space to gather to do so. And so beautifying that space elevates the, the mission of every time they gather. Uh, Judith. That reminds me, too, of um, the communal activity of building this uh, tabernacle. Nobody can have this in their own home, or very few could, because they're not wealthy people. But together, they can do something beautiful. The community can create something beautiful. And I heard that same thing in Mexico. Uh, they're criticized for the churches, which are so opulent, and the people are so poor. But that same idea was presented to me by Mexican people. None of us could have this alone, but together we can build a church that is beautiful and feel pride in the community that built it. Yeah, that's really, you know, it's a beautiful point. And the one piece that I wrestle with, and I'm just being fully transparent, is my wrestling do we remember where they got some of these beautiful yarns and threads? Probably from Egypt. They Going borrowed them. They, they borrowed, borrowed them. them <laughs> right. Borrowed <laughs> from the Egyptians when God conveniently said, just go borrow shopping. It's okay. Right. And so there's also the side that I honestly have to wrestle with of like, we build our Mishkan and our tabernacle out of borrowed goods. from the Egyptians. And that's, that's in itself something to really wrestle with that we will come back to. Uh, Deb, I see your hand is up, but you're muted. Perfect. I was just wondering if the detail is so precise because it demands intentionality of us then and because if this is our most sacred text and and the guide for how we live our lives and how we interact with each other that we bring our full presence of being there and that we are very intentional anytime we interact with it i think that we should open up a notepad i think we should be writing down each of these things because yes 
and yes, and yes to the comment before. And I started by saying we're at dry Torah. And here's the thing about Torah. We don't learn it in a vacuum. We say Torah is a living and breathing document because all of your suggestions and perspectives and thoughts that you're bringing in are what keeps Torah alive. This is a dry 30 verses, or it's incredibly important, detailed explanation. Is it about its intentionality or what if, what if the Israelites are overwhelmed? You want us to build a house for God? That same God that did those plagues, that same God that split that sea, the same God that made mana come down from the sky, we, we have to build that space for God, and they're wildly overwhelmed. What if these instructions are not only intentionality, they're the gift of not needing to be creative themselves. You don't have to try to ponder and, and, and try to, to do what's right by God. We're going to make it easier. Do this. Focus on the part of loving God and appreciating God and don't get caught up in the details of the tapestry. We'll just tell you what to do. Don't, don't torture yourself trying to figure out the perfect way to uh, honor the divine. We're going to give you 30 verses of that. Here they are. Um, let's move on a little bit forward from here. I think that everything that you have already pointed out is super, super valid. The next thing I want to ask is about the cherubim. Who can tell me what cherubim are? We got it in verse one. So it's important that we figure out what they are. Messengers. Angels of guard. Babies with wings. There were two of them on top of the ark. Facing each other. And for those who have been in UKI, there's a whole pattern of them on our carpet. Right? Yep. So they are malachim? They are... They are a separation and a distinction between us and Shekhinah. If there is something that is to protect a space of God, uh, it's something not of this earth. Angels. Angels, but, not, but, but more than angels. These are the, the winged lion-like Lions. creatures. Yeah. And the reason I ask is, at first glance, what do they trigger for anyone here? Anyone else? feel un-Jewish when they see an image of a winged lion? Anyone feel like pseudo-Greek coming in here or like some... some uh... Rabbi? Yes. I was told that they are the lowest level of the seraphim, that there are several levels of seraphim, the highest one being just circles that spheres, and the lowest level being the cherubim, Correct. They are the closest to mankind because I presume they are um, created in the image of uh, other religions' um, holy images. Has that got any validity, the levels it, of? Yes, it definitely, there is definitely um, some mystic traditions and teaching about them being that first stepping stone into, yeah. into this world of seraphim. But the part that I think throws a wrench in for those who start the dabbling into this, this exploration of our faith and on this side culture is I'll only speak for myself personally. When I see an image of a lion with wings, my first thought is not Jewish. I'm a rabbi who reads this text on a regular basis, who serves the community from a Bima made up of carpet that has this in the pattern 
And when I see a lion with wings, I don't think Jewish. And isn't it a royal symbol, the lion? Yes. Keep going. We're, we're getting there. The royal symbol. This is elevated uh, from a spiritual level. Strength. By the wings. I think. Yeah. I think. Definitely. And we are influenced by other cultures. 100%. And I don't think it's something we should ever be embarrassed about. I think it's something that really is a collaborative form of how we've elevated this idea of spirituality, for sure. Um, what about Ezekiel? What about Ezekiel? All right, continue the thread. I want it. Let's no, hear. I, I'm asking you. <laughs> Ezekiel's got some strong thoughts on this, huh? Ezekiel yes, is. Well, hold on one second. Pause on the Ezekiel piece. I'll get there in one second. Mark, I have. I see your hand is up. Uh, it just uh, just struck me that uh, they are very similar to the uh, Lion Gate um, in, in, uh, uh, that was in the royal cities of Persia. Yeah, Th- this, this image is incredibly common when it comes to the religious expressions of many faiths across the board. And, and that's part beauty. That's partially the beauty of this, that the people may have actually, by the way, what other culture has used kind of other big cats as part of their uh, royalty and elevation is Egypt, right? right? The Sphinx yeah. is something very important. So these people, they witness, they know that these creatures are often used to exemplify divine. And, and the balance that they're going through as they formulate this new faith is how to have its individuality with it while also celebrating through visual that already exists. And so I think that the really interesting part when we're now we're, we're still on verse one, really, I mean, Bert read us four or five verses, but we're still on verse one, is that we've got threads of different color, which talk about royalty and wealth, and this very, very clear charge to have the cherubim weaved in, which tells us that that visual was going to be important. The question is important to who? Who are we building the tabernacle for? It's a home for God. Okay. It is definitionally a home for God. But I want you to think a little bit more about all the the effort that's being put into shaping of the people. Yeah, Sarah, who do you think the tabernacle is, is for? It could possibly be saying that we are welcoming others who would wish to join us. Well, you know, go a little further than possibly. It wouldn't make strategic sense for us to not be welcoming of others. And I know, I know that that might put me not in the same place as other rabbis who might have some different thoughts about that and Judaism altogether. But interfaith Judaism, for instance, is we've already been reading it. I mean, two weeks ago's portion was Yitro. It's named after a Midianite priest. The portion that we received, the Ten Commandments, was named after a Midianite priest. It's not lost on us that that Judaism and especially Torah has always had an understanding of welcoming to others. And if you want to get to the basics, you don't grow a people if you don't invite new ones in. They couldn't have grown and scaled into a nation 
Yes, they already had, were, were, were numerous from being slaves in Egypt, but there, there had to be more to it. So, okay, maybe part of the cherubim is to welcome others so that when they, when they take the dive, when they decide to try this new radical faith, that there's some visual that they already can grab onto and know. Okay, who else is the tabernacle for? Mehmet, what are you thinking? Um, I think we need to look at where, where we come from. We, well, we come from Egypt, where there are these magnificent and glamorous temples, and, and some of them were built by, uh, by slaves, by Jews, definitely. And Jews have been in the Egyptian palace, as we know from Joseph. And so on. So um, when we parted from uh, Egypt, I think we want to demonstrate with our tabernacle and the future temple that we are we too are a great nation of of an amazing heritage with temples and uh, with all these instructions and so on. So it it, it is um, it is a re- reassurance to the Israelites that they too can build a great civilization as, as the rest of the Middle East, like Egypt or Mesopotamia and so on. And who is the tabernacle then for? All of us. Everyone. The Israelites. They God doesn't need, need it. That, what? God, God doesn't need it. God dwells everywhere. God has not been looking for new real estate. God was looking for a people. God wasn't concerned on where God would be because God is everywhere. This is where the people can access God. And I'm working with a student whose bat mitzvah is actually tomorrow, and I was blown away by what she pulled in through this material. Because obviously she read it, and a 13-year-old perspective said, what? Like, what? We've been talking about knots. How to, how to weave thread. Like, it, she was like, where? this was not what I was expecting from Torah study. And then what she eventually got to, what we had a conversation about was that sanctuary. If I took the ark out of that room, when you walk in that room, you'd still feel the presence of that room. We've built a room, named its intention, made it beautiful, and spent time elevating that space. You could take the Torah out of the, of the, the sanctuary, and the sanctuary still feels different. But God is as much at the ocean as God is in the sanctuary. The sanctuary is where we needed to create a space for our own lives. We need to have that space that we know we can go to. That space where we scramble to throw on our yarmulke because we can't possibly walk in there without a yarmulke on. What would happen? Because we've made that space special. Uh, Bert, I hope not. Our insurance policy is not going to do well if that's what's going to happen. That's we got to have a much stabler sanctuary than that. But God won't come down with a lightning bolt. Now <laughs> you tell have, me. That's why we have a metal roof. If you've oh, ever looked okay. up in the sanctuary, it's to really protect all of us. So, but this whole notion that the room itself carries so much of the, the, the gravitas that it helps us be in a different mindset. This girl literally said to me, we can run around and scream in the social hall, but I could never run around in the sanctuary. And I wanted to be like, yeah, you can. I believe in you. But I didn't want to tell her that like it's just another room because it's not. It's our tabernacle. It's the space that we built up to be so holy. Now, I want to now jump a little further. We're going to fast forward about 12 verses. I promise this was all just measurements and more cloth. 
Do not worry. We didn't miss anything super, super juicy. Of course, it's all worth reading. But I want to get to the next part that I'm a little troubled by. If someone can help read verse, uh, starting with verse 13. While the extra cubit at either end of each length of tent cloth shall hang down to the bottom of the two sides of the tabernacle and cover it and make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of dolphin skins above. You shall make the planks of the tabernacle of acacia wood upright. Okay, perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. What just happened there? We need ram skin and dolphin skin and acacia wood. Don't you remember why they make us eat crackers during Pesach? We were in a rush. How do we possibly have dolphin skin and giant, still viable planks of acacia wood to build with? How is that possible? What's going on here? All of a sudden, we have these, not just the rich threading, not just the color that Jody, you put in at the beginning that they borrowed from the Egyptians, these beautiful colors, but what about the dolphin skin? Yeah, Sarah. Stableness. Okay. Stability. You're talking about the wood being used for stability. Yeah. Yes, I, I totally agree. And by the way, we haven't even gotten into the illogical construction of this thing because they're still going through the desert. Imagine 30, 40% of their efforts were just in taking apart and putting back together parts of the tabernacle because it's also heavy. But my question is, where do they get the acacia wood? Where do they get dolphin skins in the desert? <laughs> Mehmet. The Torah tells us um, you've got to become good tradesmen and salesmen to, to acquire all these materials. <laughs> yes, but, but where yeah, do we get these? Acacia wood are, are common in Africa. Yes, but would they be common in the desert? It's a savannah type thing. So it's a wilderness. That one is not... The, the dolphin skin is much weirder. Maybe they weren't really dolphin skin. Maybe so it was. Yeah. Maybe it was something else that looked like dolphin skin. Or so I have a I have a teacher who speculated that, but the question would still stand: like, what animal that looks like dolphin skin were they able to bring with them? And and, and the answer might be as simple as: sometimes we have two different truths that conflict a little bit, and we have to wrestle with them. You see the story behind the acacia wood, and maybe we can argue that it would have been more viable berry. Maybe we can make that argument. But the story that at least we get, for instance, uh, for example, in Rashi, is that uh, Jacob planted the trees in Egypt as if he knew, and the people uprooted and took the trees with them when they took Joseph's body as if they knew. And that might all be well and good, but why am I eating crackers on Passover then if we had enough time to bring <laughs> giant planks of wood with us? How much of a rush was it? Were we really fleeing at the speed that we were taught as children if they had the opportunity to bring all the resources that they would need to build this holy tabernacle? It makes us ask, which truth are we focusing on? Yeah, Linda. And, and you would even think that the people who were being asked to flee would say, well, what purpose is all of this stuff going to do for us? Why do we need to? We need to save ourselves if we're, if we're fleeing. Well, and, and by the way, 
this is not a group of people who have gone without questioning or complaining, <laughs> right? <laughs> we don't have that history either. The Jewish people in the, I mean, the, the Israelites complain a lot. Then they, then they, then they doubt a lot. So to be told while they're panic running away from the Egyptians, so much so that we have this moment at the sea where they turn in all directions and see that there is no good answer in front of them. How do you think the guy lifting the tree felt? <laughs> he was like, wait, wait, I can't run. So let's really make this decision because uh, this is this is not an easy task, right? There's this truth in what we're reading right now. And it's beautiful that the Israelites are actually using materials that they have had to work for. They have had to really put in the effort just to carry them along with blind faith, with no instruction of when they were going to need the dolphin skin. Call it dolphin skin, call it Tyrannosaurus Rex skin. It doesn't really change it for me that someone had to have that with them with no explanation as to why. And suddenly they're given an explanation. And there's probably quite a bit of aha moment here. Oh, that's why we have the acacia wood. Right. But what do we do with this notion? Because, by the way, a way way of reading Torah is to recognize that you can forward and reverse. Torah is 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 more it's stronger than a given book. You can turn back and scrutinize what you read from the past with what you learn in the future. That's allowed in Torah study. So how do we scrutinize this material that teaches us that they left in a panic? How do they leave in a panic with all these materials? Wouldn't it be yeah? Wouldn't it be more realistic to think that they were traders and that they had, they took smaller things with them, and when they got to where they were going, they traded it for these skins from people who had, came from the sea, or you know, or marine travelers, or you know, it just doesn't make sense. And it's never been mentioned anywhere else that they carried things like cedar or skins or anything. No, the Midrash and the commentaries and the rabbis go wild trying to give excuses, but you're absolutely right. And it ties into what Mehmet said, and it ties into what Sarah said about the outsider. Go further than just trade. What happens when another group of people said, we love what you're doing. We believe in it too. Can we join you? Right. Why? Trade you a skin for a... We'll trade you or we'll gift it. We want in on this people too. Or how's about we'll teach you how to make matzah if you give us this, you know, our food. And and again, it it goes back to why am I eating matzah? I'm going to read every Torah portion between now and Passover with one question in mind. Did this affect why I have to eat like this for eight days, right? Because there's a lot of question in there. But, But sometimes we have to stop and say, did our commentary spend more time trying to justify what they read rather than just acknowledge some of the mystery inside of it. Mm -hmm. I do not believe that the people left Egypt carrying trees. (laughs) I just don't. But I do believe that there's an opportunity here for them to discover things along the way, to have brought in new people, to have traded with those who might've been going across to do that trade. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Now, there's some difficulty in the measurements. And by the way, does everyone here by show of hands know what a cubit is? A cubit measurement? We're talking fingertip to elbow. It doesn't even, it's not the same for every person because we have different, we're different heights. 
And so we're, we're in a little bit of murky space here. There's a lot of details which help us to know how to make this beautiful space. But there are some questions that are left unanswered. And I think that's okay. I think we get to decide for ourselves. I think we get to speculate if it was the trademans piece. And I think we also get to take a hard look at our midrash and say, I think you're trying too hard. I don't think you need to make this fit. I don't think you need to give the example that we must have carried all of these things with us from Egypt. Because when you take a story and you need to make it work and you end up in an outlandish place, it takes away from what you're originally reading. This material that I call dry actually has quite a gift to it. The gift, the gift is that we don't have to think and overcomplicate the material. We can read at the face value that what we're doing here is celebrating a space in which the people can join with the divine. That in itself, that in itself is very, very powerful. And so then when we look back and we ask why our commentary and why our tradition has to try to justify what we read, we get to put that commentary on trial a little bit. We get to ask why that's the more important piece to focus on. And I don't think we always do that. So I think it's helpful that we remind ourselves that we can. Any questions or thoughts so far? Yeah, Linda. It also gives all of the people who are studying this or listening to it or whatever, a chance to have community conversations. And some people might have one idea and other people might have another idea. And when they come together, they then can uh, have reasons that they express as to why you think this or why you think that. And so that everybody is involved in the understanding or at least the trying to understand what this all means. Yeah. I think it's important to realize this isn't, this isn't CNN with the cameras. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is story, this is legend. And if we are to, if we don't accept that this was dictated by God on Mount Sinai, but was something that was put together and re-related over a long period of time, then we don't have to require that it be truthful in the physical sense. And I think if it were a lot more straightforward, I think as Linda said, we wouldn't be talking about it. It'd just be a book like many books from that time that just sits on a shelf. But the fact that it's not clear, the fact that there are all these questions is what keeps it alive. And that's just an excuse, by the way. But I'll go one step further and say, I do believe, even if we recognize that God didn't write the Torah, I truly believe in divine inspiration. The authorship of Torah, I believe, is divinely inspired. I don't think that actually makes, I don't think that's a problematic viewpoint to take. And I actually think, though, yes, these are stories, sometimes they have stronger background and writing and depth of character than others. I will say that I believe every word of a Torah to be intentional. And I believe that we actually get quite a bit out of why the text is written the way it is. What I am questioning, and I think it's important to remember, is that the commentaries 
are admittingly human. The commentaries don't pretend to be divine. Rashi just sparked a generation of thinkers, but Rashi was a person. And so sometimes when we read the commentary, I almost feel twice as compelled to say, I don't see the logic and where they came from on that. So I need to go back to the material and I need to read it further and I need to investigate deeper and I need to try to find the context that I might be missing. I'm not sure we need to dismiss words of Torah pretty much ever. I think we are fully capable of dismissing the commentary built around it and to rebuild our own intellectualism and our own thought process around its words. Uh, Judith and then Mehmet. When we look back at the building of our synagogue, how many people were involved in the decision-making and in the building and the design and the materials and the rug that you're talking about? It was a community effort to make it a community place. And and it worked. Uh, we We could never each of us build a building like that. But it became sacred because of the people who built it. All of us built it together. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, it really rings true of the same thing you shared earlier in a different sense of it, but that we, we collaborate in a way to achieve something we may not be able to achieve on our own. And, and by the way, whether it be the physical building of a sanctuary or the, or the, the the visual of us building out this tradition more in each week of Torah study that you joined together in. What we achieve by coming together and sharing thought is completely different than what we might get by reading the material in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. The, the communal aspect will always, always enhance and further our reach of what we can discover and what we can achieve and what we can build because there there is something very powerful and real to that. When we go back to the synagogue in person, eventually, I hope everybody will again look at the wall uh, outside the chapel about the history of the synagogue. And you'll see at the bottom photos of every step of the building. And look at all the different people in those photos who were so instrumental in building that synagogue. It's live history of a community. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite walls. It's uh, it's really awesome to see and to, as someone who didn't get to be there for that piece, to still feel like I understand and get to, to live through that. Mehmet. I wanted to touch on the same subject. Um, it not only takes the community to um, be able to build a tabernacle, but it takes, it definitely takes a very diverse set of people um, um, to be able to build um, a tabernacle because all the materials that were that we'll just, you know, we just read a few of these and there are multiple uh, very interesting materials that are needed to build a tabernacle. You need diversity in a society. We, and without diversity, you cannot build build that uh, sacred space. That That's what I was thinking about. You have that in community. You have that in... I mean, quite frankly, in government and this and that and anything you think of, and you have that especially in faith. I don't think the vibrancy of faith would be met, would be reached if we all saw God the same way, or we all saw peoplehood the same way, or we all understood Israel the same way. That would leave us with a very not dynamic 
understanding and, and build out of faith. Our faith is stronger because of that diversity. Because you may be sitting here saying, I've agreed with nothing Rabbi Sher has said. And I would say, that is wonderful. We've got twice as many thoughts then. Because that's the whole purpose. That diversity actually enhances and strengthens our positioning of faith as well. And it's, it's always interesting to me to see, and it's never spoken, but it's viscerally reactive wise, see people's pushback to diversity at times if it doesn't feel like their own perspective. And I'm not saying it as a negative. I'm saying it as what an interesting push and pull of our uh, own self-protection to, to want people who think like us at times because it, it kind of uh, ensures or supports our thoughts, but then to realize that actually our positionings are stronger if we have others around us who don't see eye to eye. We're more necessary in a diverse population. Each and every one of our voices is more necessary in a world in which that voice brings a new perspective. And so to think about that push and pull of so many moments through history in which people have been concerned with so much diversity because it makes them feel like who they are might dissolve or disappear when really that perspective was upside down. Because by being in a diverse space, we need you all the more. We need you present all the more. And who you are is important that much more because there is only one person like you in that diverse space. And who, whatever that diverse space is in faith, in government, in school, in a walking club, it doesn't matter. You name it. That voice that you bring in is needed perspective and enhancement to that group. Mark, I see your hand is up. You know, uh, I, I was thinking really very much along the lines that you were just uh, enunciating. But it's also uh, quite uncommon for uh, religious groups to invite that kind of diversity. And uh, for a, uh, a relatively small, vulnerable group of people wandering in the desert to engage uh, in such an open and inclusive way with others to bring people in, because the, the notion of trading, I think, is, is very persuasive and bringing people in in that way. But I think that that inclusiveness, if not unique, is certainly very unusual and very strengthening. You know, I, I, I always wonder, is it unusual across the board or are we missing part of a history of where people became afraid? Mm. I think our tradition started in an incredibly inclusive space. I think we all know there are big fragments of our tradition that are not inclusive. There are pieces of our tradition that are not inclusive to mine and Rabbi Bernstein's uh, ordination and perspectives. There, I mean, mm -hmm. there is there is so many layers to this kind of locked down version of only accepting the perspectives that they know. But the funny thing is, I think our most basic text of Torah has never endorsed it. So mm -hmm. if we were to really do that exploration and investigation, we'd be looking far deeper. And it actually brings me to the last thing I want us to look at today. This Shabbat is Shabbat Zachor. And ever, anyone hear of that before? It's the Shabbat before Purim. And in fact, because of that Shabbat, the Maftir that we would read, no matter what week in the triennial, the Maftir that we would read 
is the following three lines. It's right here. It's remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. How undeterred by fear of God, he surprised you on your march when you were famished and weary, cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when Adonai, your God, grants you safety from all your enemies around you, in the land that Adonai, your God, is giving you as your hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. We don't have an hour to build this out, but it says blot out the memory from heaven, period. Do not forget. Get rid of his memory, but don't forget that you did that. That's very bizarre. And there's a reason for that uh, kind of complexity inside of those sentences. We read these three lines on Purim because there's a tradition that our, our, that our uh, ancestors have taught that Haman is an ancestor of Amalek. But whether or not you buy into that piece, what this is supposed to remind us is that there will always be those who act through hatred. There will always be those who see the world in a way in which they are afraid of collaboration. They are afraid of diversity. They are afraid of new people and new blood and new thoughts. And those people exist. And we have to stay vigilant and we have to be ready to always embrace our version of celebrating the beauty that is in everyone and every tradition around us. But we cannot forget that Amalek and the Amalek type still exist. And that's why we have to have days like Purim, which is often conflicting for people. A holiday where we're telling you to just let go, let loose. For those of you who are not signed up, I highly suggest you consider signing up for next Thursday's uh, trivia night, because that's exactly what we're going to do. We're just going to have fun and let loose and be silly and enjoy because what Purim says is the Amaleks are always around the corner. If we don't stop and breathe and enjoy once in a while, we're going to run out of steam to push back against that kind of hatred thought. For many of you, there was an exhausting multiple years in our rear view now, years of having to shut down every hate-filled thing that came up in the news. Every single one, it was exhausting and they're still going. So we need days like Purim. And we need to be torn by this notion of blotting out that hatred from history and also never forgetting that hatred. Doing our best to make this world a more pure and holy and loving place and never letting our guard fully down because we have an obligation to make this a wonderful and beautiful place. Yeah, Susan. Oh, I, I just think it's an interesting take on forgiveness because in essence, um, we're commanded to never forgive the Amalekites and to not remember that we're to never forgive them. Yeah. We are given a lot of holy challenges. And what might've started like a ritual version of a Lego manual in reading this week's Torah portion, there's actually a whole lot of depth and beauty to this notion of what might seem like a straightforward instruction manual. Because we can be given those instructions. We can be given how to build out the space to make it a beautiful space for us to meet with God. 
but we are the ones that then assign its its gravitas and holiness to the space. Yarn is yarn. Even winged lions is just a visual unless we buy in that it connects us to something deeper and and with more uh, history. We are the ones that take a portion like the second triennial of Truma and elevate it into a holy experience. That's what we have the power to bring in to Torah study. And that's a really beautiful reminder in this week's Torah portion. This is the point of Torah study. What we read, and for those of you who are like, yeah, this is not what I expected to learn. I, I hope that you always come in. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you do. This is why you guys come back every single week. Because we learn beautiful, vibrant, interesting things. We don't just get a thumbs up for being told, yeah, you actually knew all of it. Right? There's the people who come to class because they like to be told how much they already knew. But that's not the way Torah <laughs> study works. In Torah study, we're always going to experience and explore ways that we didn't see the text before that. And that's why there is a blessing to the study of Torah. That's why we say these words of Baruch, Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam. Asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. We have the opportunity Mm -hmm. to engage, to wrestle, to explore this beautiful lessons that come from Torah. And so I appreciate everyone who shared their thoughts, everyone who added to the tapestry of different perspectives that we were able to to kind of weave together. You like how I took the weaving back in from Truma. We had to get a little wordplay there. And, and, and I'm so glad that I had the chance to study with you all this morning. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.